I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Pablo Lerner, a psychologist from Gothenburg, Sweden, residing in Paris, offering psychoanalytic psychotherapies in private practice. He is the editor of the anthology Freud and the Death Drive that came out in 2021. Currently, he is working on a book entitled Speculating on the Edge of Psychoanalysis, Rings and Voids, which deals with the status of the void in Lacan's psychoanalysis and sheds new light on phenomena such as creation, poetry, solitude, grief, mysticism, the clinical structure, and the poetic art of interpretation. In particular, he is currently writing a chapter precisely about grief and death. He has contributed a chapter to a book I am editing currently on the work of filmmaker Ingmar Bergman from Freudian Lacanian perspectives. His contribution is Beyond Silence on the absence of God in the films of Ingmar Bergman. For more, please visit his website, pablolerner.se. That's P A B L O L E R N E R.se. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film, at YouTube, or search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry from Trapart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23 C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Let's start with death. Uh, you know, you don't have to be um, like Blas Pascal, who like thought that everything was way and, you know, having to do with science, mathematics, etc., uh, to just like focus on the topics of death and God, you know, until the end of his, his life. You don't have to be that radical to, to argue that uh, death is a quite, uh, let's say, um, interesting subject <laughs> and quite important for, for us human beings in general and, you know, psychoanalysis perhaps in uh, uh, specifically now. We, we encounter death every day when we work with our patients in the most you know, diverse ways and uh, and also naturally death uh, in the theory of psychoanalysis from Freud onwards, it's 
well, it had its vicissitudes, let's say that it has been really difficult for, for our great you know, thinkers to, to integrate it into our theory. So, so what, what is there to say about that? I, I don't know. <laughs> let's, let's find out. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of memento mori and always keeping it in mind um, in order to live your life to the fullest, you know? Yeah. Appreciate, yeah. appreciate every day. I'm a big fan of celebrating every day. Holidays are great, but I kind of, I feel like every day when Carl and I have dinner, I'm like, it's been a great day. And I just like, I don't know, I want to celebrate whatever I can in life, especially I think because I have had so many friends pass away, especially in the past couple of years. Yeah. And just in general, I'm just happy I'm still here. And uh, yeah. Of course. Yeah, there is a happiness that has to do, obviously, with, with valuing life and encountering death. The thing, there is something other also, I think, that has to do with living in the proximity of it. You know, having the death close to you. Obviously, you have to learn how to grieve first, but, uh, but there is something very special about the you know, specific quality about a bit being close to death, which is not only, you know, anxiety or horror or fear or something like that, but also uh, beauty, I suppose. You know, being able to, to find a way, a constructive way, I assume, to, 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 to relate to death uh, gives you another dimension, you know, in the experience, you know, of everyday life. Beauty. Beauty. Yeah, yeah. I, and I can say I, I really only came to this attitude really re relatively recently after grieving a close friend for over a year. And then since it's kind of her year anniversary of her murder passed, I, uh, I've just been like feeling eternally grateful all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. Gratitude. Isn't it a beautiful feeling? You know, love. What, what is love without, without the feeling of gratitude? And there is something having to do also, I believe, with, with losing somebody you, you profoundly love, that, that, you know, you start to, like, living <laughs> as such in some way becomes, uh, uh, given that it is, like, permeated by this sense of gratitude, which you, you speak about, becomes something that has more to do with, you know, giving, giving back, you know, not necessarily giving back to those who don't exist anymore, you know, but just giving back. Just giving back. It's nice. It's better than being preoccupied with yourself all the time. <laughs> I believe at least. Yeah. And I think also yeah. with this specific um, person, I think the fact that she was murdered really was different because I've had many friends pass away with the, you know, cancer or, you know, accidents and things like that. But I think the fact that somebody else chose to take her life, it really like had a, um, different effect on me in a way that I didn't really imagine before because I'd never experienced something like that so it was like uh, because on the perpetrator was like a very conscious choice on his part yeah. um, this is the fact that somebody could do that to somebody especially they had been in a relationship for more than five years yeah. and I can't imagine what what is going on there that somebody could choose to do that to their partner of five years especially when she had children, you know, it's just like, it's just incomprehensible to me. And it really just like kind of opened up this chasm of like what humans are capable with. Of course, in theory, like, well, I've worked in hospitals or with perpetrators of crimes, but I think when it happens to someone you know so personally, just yeah. like really hits you at a different kind of level. Yeah, it's horror, what horror, what horror, my God. Yeah, yeah. 
I understand what you think, what you're saying. I think you know, speaking uh, speaking like like as clinicians, theory, yeah, theory, yeah. Psychoanalysis perhaps has theorized about these things, you know, and of course having a distance also to your patients when you speak about it. But but these you know close experiences about about death, I believe it is on on that level that you as a psychoanalyst or clinician can can start to speak about somebody yeah, about with your patients about uh, about these topics. You have to have experienced it. I believe it's not the same thing. It can't be like cerebral, your relation to death, like the clinical setting, you know. But yeah, the horror of death in all its different tragic forms. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like theory in general. You know, reading theory, I, I totally appreciate the philosophers that use psychoanalysis. Um, but I feel like uh, when you read theory and you understand it that way, but then you see kind of the theory playing out in your own life when you undergo analysis, it's just like also such a different level. You're like, oh, this is what Freud is talking about. This is what Lacan is talking about. When you can really like feel, feel the scan, feel the cut and how that affects you or feel uh, the, different, the different theories that they're talking about. Because of course they develop these theories through their practices. <laughs> so they saw them as like clinical clinical vignettes or cases of people first and then came up with these kinds of theories through their work so it's like kind of seeing it from that side is also a different way of understanding yeah absolutely which brings us to freud you know he was obsessed with the theme about murder of course and uh, of course he had also great difficulty of of knowing how to you know meditate about it uh, think about it um you know in Freudian psychoanalysis, you know, proceeding from the conception that we are, in principle, like sexual beings, like you know, driven by by the sexual drive, and the apparatus, you know, psychical apparatus is a structure of thoughts serving to regulate, you know, the course of the excitation, blah blah blah, in accordance with the pleasure principle. How do you like integrate death in that? You know, how do you integrate also murder in that? Freud, you know, in in that's the thing. Would you would you make an interpretation like this, you know, to a person who has lived through something like that? For him, for Freud, he's quite explicit about it. You know, murder as such, the death which towards the other, it's it's not real. You know, it's not real. There cannot be a real, you know, wish to murder somebody. It cannot be simply because death is not an experience. Death is not a thought. You know, there is no death before beyond the pleasure principle, at least at the level of the drive. So, you know, proceeding from this idea about the incestuous relationship with the mother and the rival entering, you know, murder is something that basically just want to get rid of, of the one who stands in the way. And uh, he says it's like explicitly, the, the unconscious, there is no death, there is no murder. The child only understands like being gone and that's equal to death for them, they don't understand death. So basically uh, for for him, I would argue at least that that patricide in the case of the Oedipus complex, but murder in general is an, is an act of love. There is nothing but love. There is nothing but the libido. There is nothing but sexuality. So there is a problem there, I think, in Freudian theory about how to integrate uh, murder and death in a theory that basically is revolves around wishes having to do with enjoyment. 
And uh, would you say that to a patient? Would you say that to somebody, you know, who has really gone through murder, or that it's profoundly on a profound level about love? It's complicated, isn't it? Try to like translate that into clinical practice. I don't know if I recommend it, you know, you can't speak with people like that. And what be. about the other the other side of the coin where it's like our life is only like kind of a detour because the real drive is just death. Yeah, you're speaking about the death drive, right? Ooh, this is complicated. Ooh, this is really complicated. Uh, and I enjoy this uh, very much. I, I you know, I, I've always thought that like I I think that beyond the pressure principle, it's not about death at all, it's about life. You know, he put this in a footnote in a later edition that that this is his attempt to solve the riddle of life, you know. <laughs> and the question is, what, what does the uh, introduction of the death drive then amount to? You know, he introduces all of these like clinical phenomena, repetition, etc. And the drive, as you say, is a form of return to an earlier state, you know, the, the, the conservatism of the drive. Yes, but you know, everything has to do with death. You know, everything has to do with death for Freud with the introduction of the death drive, I think at least is absolutely totally based on this myth about the origin of life. <laughs> That's what's, you know, stunning, you know, I suppose about it and, and conspicuous in many ways. You know, without this myth about the origin of life as some kind of chance event where some kind of excitation of stimulus or chemical organism suddenly emerge and there was an automatic, you know, tendency to, to return to the inorganic state. Without that, there is nothing that legitimizes the, the word death to drive. Nothing, nothing. It's just based on this myth, you know. The compulsion of repeat, uh, to repeat can of course, you know, doesn't need the hypothesis that, you know, death is the absolute, you know, goal in the sense that it is not what is after life, but before life. It is not in need with this, this leap to the beyond, you know, it is not, a necessary implication, I believe, of the compulsion to repeat. But Freud's meditations about this is, I think, uh, dependent on uh, uh, ideas about the courses of the event of the excitation. <laughs> it's really boring, I think, in some sense. Freud's meditations about the death drive, in the most profound level, it's just about excitations. It's not poetic, it's not metaphysics, it's excitations, you know, the automatic uh, you know, tendency to, to, to nivellate it, to, to return to level zero. That's what it is. And uh, should you interpret that, you know, poetically, should you like metaphorize it and, and raise it to the level of, you know, everyday experience, or should you do it to, to the level of, you know, existential problems? I don't know, perhaps. But, uh, but yeah, perhaps it was a desperate attempt by Freud to introduce it to the most profound level of his theory. But is it sufficient? I don't know. What do you think? What did you learn? You, of course, just edited a book on the, the Beyond the Pleasure Principle, um, the 100th anniversary. Uh, what did you learn in editing that book? Uh, confusion, I think, is the correct one. <laughs> Not necessarily that I am confused, but there is a confusion in the psychoanalytic field to, to account for it. You know, Danny Nobus, who, who wrote the text to the book, said that and no one has really like taken like Freud seriously and maintained his form of the death drive. Everyone who like has made some kind of uh, 
creative development of his idea has first like killed the death drive and then it has resurrected in a different form. So I think that uh, basically psychoanalysis given that one is uh, tempted to do something about this concept has to make rid of Freud's fundamental you know, assumptions about the course of the excitation and take some of its effect and do something creative, you know? And this, it's very interesting because there is, of course, some kind of fidelity to Freud in Klein, in Lacan, for example, Andre Klein, Negrin, but they are, they are so different. They like partially overlap perhaps. They don't even contradict each other. They're not logically like contradicting, they're separated, you know, <laughs> separated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I believe that the theme of, of death still haunts, you know, um, psychoanalysis, some kind of outsider. And uh, different theories are confronted with the task of integrating it. But I think in some sense, they are doomed to, to, to fail. And that makes it so incredibly interesting. Incredibly interesting. It, it like makes psychoanalysis something else, I assume, than, than just science, scientific theory, it like forces them to introduce, it's a uh, eruption of that which is beyond the, 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 the speakable, you know, and to be able to integrate that is to like play, you know, is to approach the limit of uh, the capacity of theory to, to, to make do, to, to, to account for, for these kinds of phenomena. But I believe that the most brilliant psychoanalysts that we, we have in our, uh, in, in the history, they have been very, very creative and very, very, um, yeah, they have been very creative. Klein has been very creative. Uh, Bion and Lacan, naturally, very creative. And uh, I think that uh, you could at least argue that Laplante, uh, that a psychoanalyst who, who really has tried to revolutionize, you know, on a profound level, has to, has to confront this, this question in a singular way, in a singular way. Yeah, because it simply doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah, but I love that about psychoanalysis, how that people can have theories that don't meet at all or that do contradict. Um, and, you know, in, in New York, there's so many different psychoanalytic institutes and schools of these, there's like 50. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, people will have arguments trying to say like, well, so-and-so said this, and so that doesn't make sense with that. And like the fact that one contradicted the other, like somehow negates what the other person said. But... I just try not to do that at all because I find that like I get something out of you know most of these really creative thinkers um, yeah. and I try to think I like kind of seeing I mean for me I don't even really mind when if I don't like fully believe the ideas that I'm kind of working with I just kind of like to see where ideas go sometimes and just kind of keep pushing them and keep pushing them and then like okay well if that makes sense with that then what about if we do this see what happens theoretically not clinically but you know yeah that's right and at some point I believe that that's being faithful to Lacan, you know, not necessarily reading him like line by line and trying to memorize everything and structure everything in mathematical diagrams, but, but just read it like something incoherent and something strikes you and then you should like creatively do something. The same thing with the clinical practice in some sense. Um, yeah, and I think that that's perhaps uh, you know, authentic way to confront these questions, just read the books and listen to the patients and live your life, you know, and be open to the encounters with death and things will happen with you. And proceeding from that, you will hopefully 
depending on who you are, you know, have something to say about it. But it has to be, you know, it has to be you who says it as a real human being, not as some kind of, you know, functionary of, <laughs> yeah. But I no, believe- that's exactly right. That's a beautiful way to put it because I, I get frustrated when people get to um, bogged down with trying to kind of understand everything, especially with Lacan, of course. You know, so many people, so many analysts that haven't been taught Lacan or had Lacanian study groups, you know, are afraid to kind of even go to the seminars. And uh, I just tell them, just read it. You don't have to understand everything he's saying. You know, nobody does. It's fine. Just like read it and see what hits you. And every time you read it, it'll hit you differently. And it's kind of like, I think it's more like the practice. Like, I feel like reading his seminars is like, kind of like the experience of psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic theory in a way where it kind of like sometimes it, it does go in a loop and then you're like oh wait we're back here and this connects to this and then sometimes you get a little like lost and you're like wait where, where was I what was I talking about and then it'll come back around and you just kind of have to go with it and see where it leads and not just yeah. get so caught up on um yeah on the exact things that he's saying all the time so yeah. that's fun to do I mean I love doing close readings and like reading groups with other people and like with David Lichtenstein, we had a study group. I think we read like one decree and it took us like two years to read one paper because you know, we were reading it line by line so closely. And that's really fun as well. But you don't have to do that, you know, just like read it and take from it and think your own thoughts. Don't worry so much that you don't know all the references. You don't know all the different theorists exactly like nobody did when they started. Just like don't let that inhibit you, you know. Yeah, the challenge, I suppose, like at least like on the clinical level is to forget it, but not totally you know not really forget it but just like forget it for a while you know forget it <laughs> it, it stays there somewhere but you can yeah it's not going anywhere so <laughs> it's it gets in there <laughs> you don't have to consciously understand for it to be working on you the ghost of Lacan the ghost of Lacan yeah <laughs> never lets you go he haunts me anyhow yeah but speaking about yeah of course like memento mori um which you spoke about and this kind of, uh, yeah, and, and the sense of, you know, being close to, to beauty or the whole in lack of a better word, uh, which accompanies the, the, the proximity to death, you know. If you want to read somebody, you know, something to, to be able to, to approach it, perhaps you should read the poets or the mystics or the religious literature, you know, not necessarily psychoanalytic theory or like other theories for that sake, existential theory course it's important but I, I I want to believe at least that it's essential for the, the clinician to to uh, approach it differently than through theory, theory yeah in some in some way I think how do you interpret uh, questions really on a profound level that has to do with death how do you interpret it when a patient you know have some kind of really strong emotion when he cries because he can for the first time, like cry for the loss of I don't know who they have loved. What do you say? You know, and how do you say it? If you are going to say anything, which you perhaps shouldn't do, but if you are, I believe it is absolutely crucial to to not to speak um, where the words, in a sense, reverberate. You know, reverberate differently than the everyday speech or this kind of, let us say, common interpretation on a psychodynamic level. It has to reverberate elsewhere uh, on the level of the beautiful, I think, I believe so. And that's, that's, why I, that's why I 
that's why I try at least to to, to my colleagues to uh, to to uh, say to them that they perhaps should read more poetry <laughs> and less Freud sometimes at least, and then return to Freud, you know, then return to him, then return to Lacan. But yeah, I believe uh, I believe that the topic of death is intimately uh, linked to poetry. They're all obsessed about it for obvious reasons, you know, and the mystics also naturally. I think there's something to learn there. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And Freud said that the, everywhere I go, there's always a poet that's been there before me. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Oh, about uh, Freud and death and poets for that sake, you know, this, uh, this wonderful little text on transience uh, mm -hmm. where, where he retells this anecdote where he was strolling around like the land, uh, the land side um, with, um, with Rilke and uh, Lou Andrea Salumian, you know, uh, viewing uh, the beauty of the surrounding like forests and stuff like that and he was like totally shocked he said that the young poet you know, Rilke couldn't um, appreciate the beauty he couldn't feel like joy for the beautiful around him because because everything beautiful is, is doomed to perish you know transience and Freud had I believe this is very humorous Freud said, uh, I literally quote him now, I did dispute the young pessimistic poet's view. <laughs> he disputed <laughs> him. And then he put forward like this argument about uh, the value of the beautiful is scarcity value in time. And the limitation of the time of enjoyment raises its value. And it's absolutely, it's independent of absolute duration. I don't know. Anyhow, I, I find it really fun to, to try to imagine this scenario where Freud, the scientist, tries to persuade Rilke, the poet, about the status of the beautiful uh, on purely economic grounds. <laughs> you know, yeah, and and he uh, he simply didn't get it. You know, because Rilke writes this uh, afterwards that like that, that Rilke and and Lou Andrea Salome they weren't like uh, convinced. And he's right. My my argument, I found it like perfect. You can't argue that this is wrong. This is true. But I, I couldn't understand why they weren't convinced. And then he like adds, but later I understood that it was a revolt, you know, uh, against mourning, which disturbed their, you know, their judgment or something like that. I found that extremely symptomatic or telling in some way. Yeah. Obviously, perhaps he was absolutely right. You know, perhaps it just was a revolt and perhaps it's like argument is absolutely correct. And, you know, <laughs> but he didn't, there was something he didn't get it. He didn't get it. Something is just lacking. And it's about beauty and death. Beauty and death. Rilke, perhaps he was, you know, a young, melancholic, couldn't mourn, just immature. What do I know? Personally, I don't believe that because Rilke is Rilke. <laughs> but, uh, but he got something there, you know. He understood, you know, the profound link between beauty and death. Freud didn't. I don't think he did. No, I mean, that's my eternal frustration with Freud, but he's just such a man of like his era in that way, where he's like trying to kind of base everything in materiality and like you said, ec economy and the, the body and making everything like biological and scientifically proven. And yeah. you can see him like it is him. It's like his own neurosis, like fighting against his own nature because he goes off on these like speculative tangents and that's some of his best work. 
Um, but Danny Nobis and I were talking the other day about he's like, but like a lot of Freud's papers would never get published in a journal now. <laughs> you know, some of them really go, he goes off and wanders, and that's the best part. Um, but he's just like constantly like trying to box things back in and make them, you know, all scientifically sound and proven. I just recently read, I don't even remember what it was, it was something like uh, where he was, he it was actually right after he wrote Totem, Totem and Taboo, which is like clearly very kind of out there um, and then he like comes back and he writes like a treatise on like you know how how uh, psychoanalysis uh, fits with like philosophy and biology and education and these different kinds of more concrete uh, factions and uh, it's just really funny for him to go on and on about how like the you know the rigor of the psychoanalytic process and how it's this like huge like scientific process that people have gone through that they've been able to prove these theories in these yeah. ways as opposed to like the speculative philosophers, you know, it's like, okay, Freud. <laughs> but you know what I think, perhaps this is some kind of radical thought. I'm not trying to be provocative, but I, I think that Freud, it is not impossible. It's not unthinkable that he would conceive of beyond the pressure principle as one of his most scientific works <laughs> for the simple reason, you know, uh, I think, he never, Ernst Jones did the same thing, you know, he didn't never abandon, you know, his fundamental epistemologic position, which inherited by Ernst von Bricke, his teacher, basically the, the paradigm of uh, Helmholtzian physical reductionism, you know, basically of the hierarchical structure of the sciences, where in the base we have physics, then we have chemistry, biology, and the top there, we have like psychology. You know, in, in, in his theory of the drives and in beyond the pleasure principle, well, he states that, 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 you know, the drive is like some kind of limit concept between the body and the psyche. But this is like the first time in beyond the pressure principle where he goes down to the absolute most fundamental level of science. That is, you know, the bio biophysical terrain, you know, the biophysical domain. He explicitly say this. This is the biophysical like standpoint. This is 1937. And uh, yeah. The excitations, you know, which he speaks about, the stimulant, you know, it's not longer like the psych psychical energy, which is very abstract and very diffuse. We don't really know exactly what it is. Perhaps it's some kind of effect of the nervous system. And we don't know. But the excitations which he speaks about and beyond the pleasure principle are clearly real. They're physical. They're physical, you know. So in that sense, he remained faithful to his, you know, scientific uh, prehistory. And in one sense, according to that view, it was much more scientific than everything else he had written the rest of his career. <laughs> so I wonder how Freud thought about it himself. You know, I, I wonder if he perceived it as uh, something uh, which reflected his seriousness. Of course, he understood that everyone would hate it and they, they would perceive it as bizarre and speculative, I think at least. But I believe that his refusal to give it up reflects his fidelity to uh, to uh, some kind of uh, physicalist uh, reductionism. And this is like the only way he could truly, uh, truly, truly, you know, integrate uh, death on a fundamental level, more fundamental than the psychological one. It's down there, it's down there at the uh, inanimate level, uh, you know, as a struggle between that and the biological fundamental force of the libido, you know. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder why he thought about that. But that's, yeah, I found that interesting, reading it like historically uh, beyond the pleasure principle. It gives you, in relation to Entwurf, in relation to, you know, his prehistory, his formation, it, you know, you perceive it in another light, 
it don't become as speculative it becomes like seriousness and you take freud serious in a way at the same time they think that it's quite uh, reasonable to reject his speculation of the vicissitude of the little vesicle you know it's quite reasonable to do that that you can perceive on a more fundamental level you know personally how it is some kind of uh, expression of uh, you know, scientific curiosity uh, yeah and not only speculative you know, self-sabotage <laughs> yeah i don't know i love beyond the pleasure principle at the institute that i went to before i studied with lacanians um the the professors there were a lot of them were like md like psychiatrists and the person who was teaching the class the, the that that late freud section of of the training um he basically just didn't teach it he taught like the beginning part and then he was like after this freud he, he's like i'm an evolutionary biologist and this whole death drive thing makes no sense and he's like freud basically was getting senile and just like lost his mind and and decided that it wasn't even worth teaching and i was like well i would like to learn it <laughs> of course of course of course you know, I love, I, yeah, it's a wonderful text. I love it. I love it. It's one of those which I love most by Freud. You know, it has, it, it's personal. It is, it's a personal text. Yeah. I also love like Moses and monotheism uh, for the very same reason. Freud, you know, he was obsessed with some kind of prosaic, like theoretization, very rigorous and scientific about stuff happening in the psyche. But I actually believe, you know, this is my hypothesis, that that he was he had, there there was something you know mystic about his capacity to invent stuff you know yeah we have like this Entwurf this uh, project for a scientific um, uh, psychology where he writes of course in the letter to to Fleece he was absolutely like inspired and exalted and wrote it like really really rapidly it's very visual you know very visual to its nature uh, which the rest of his work basically isn't it's very prosaical and uh, yeah you could like hypothesize that he like saw suddenly saw the course of the excitation <laughs> and understood immediately yeah this is true this is right i've invented it this is it you know and obviously we have to like take into account also all his ex all his obsessions with like creation myths originary myths you know the original uh, primordial scenes the primordial father the killing of him uh, the 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 beginning of life and beyond the pleasure principle the little vesicle you know there is something having to do with the obsession about this and it's obvious like break with everything scientific with the rest of him which i think like is symptomatic to a part of freud's way of thinking that has been forgotten or perhaps negated which he himself i believe would like to repress perhaps it's he couldn't help himself that's why I love Moses and monotheism. He couldn't help himself. He had to write it. You know, it, it touched upon him profoundly. Of course, he was Jewish, you know, but he couldn't help himself. He had to write it. Same with like the, the, the vicissitude of the vesicle in, in Beyond the Precipice. He had to do it. He just had to do it. It reflected his profound intuitions where he, I believe, like saw the origin of everything, the origin of life. You know, that's what he's writing about. He saw it. And then it like, he has to try to integrate it into a theory that is highly prosaical and non-visual to its nature. So yeah, in the light of this, it's a sign of personal, it's very, I read him as very, very personal. You approach, you come closer to Freud's way of thinking, I believe, than when you read him like, like a theoretician. And I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that.
<laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I love it. And um, I just finished putting together a class on, on Freud's kind of relationship to philosophy for this, uh, for GCAS, for Global Institute for Advanced Studies that I'm teaching at in the spring. Um, and he talks about how the problem with philosophy is that every philosopher's philosophy is so individual to that person who's creating it and such a reflection of their psychology as if to say that psychoanalysis is not and I thought that was pretty funny of course. <laughs> well of course and speaking about the topic of death you know everyone knows that Freud let's say he had a complicated relation to death you know very complicated uh, well it has been written you know so many books about it began uh, i suppose you know with with his baby brother julius who was one and a half year younger than him he died before he was one years old you know and freud when he was adult he repeatedly said that his biggest uh, like preoccupation in in his life was to die before his mother you know <laughs> and after you know she died he could finally like die in peace without guilt he um jones writes somewhere that he always sometimes at least said uh, 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 took farewell with the words uh, uh, goodbye, perhaps we'll never see each other again. He, he, Freud had told Jones that he had uh, told this angst, death anxiety every day, that he was obsessed with death all the time, you know. Uh, of course, he wrote it also on the preface to the second edition uh, to the interpretation, uh, interpretation of dreams, that he understood it retroactively, you know, the interpretation of dreams, the writing of it. It was a reaction, you know, to the far death of his father, the death of his father, uh, Jakob Freud, 1896. Yeah, it was the most important event he, he wrote, the most painful event for a man in his own life. And uh, well, his auto-analysis, self-analysis and the writing of interpre interpretation of dreams is naturally intimately linked to his experience of it. And the Oedipus complex, of course, he writes to fleas, you know, also me, you know, I was in love with my mother and I had murderous impulses to my father. It, he found it, you know, he found it in a deeply personal, on a deeply personal level, you know, descending into the realm of the dreams, his own dreams. There he found, you know, psychoanalysis. And uh, to, to read uh, Jones, I believe, is way too radical when he says that, for example, the death drive, the introduction of the concept of the death drive, is just like a reflection of Freud's problems with death, and we should reject it, you know, as, as purely a reflection of his psychology and nothing scientific, etc. But of course, it would be almost ridiculous and non-Freudian to, to read Freudian theory without taking uh, into account Sigmund Freud, you know, of course. But one should at the same time, you know, take him, let, let the theory be also, and let Freud be. May he rest in peace, you know. We should be kind toward him. <laughs> but yeah, we shouldn't destroy his theory, proceeding from a conception about his own problems. That would, that would not be right. No, absolutely. I just find, I mean, it's just amazing how generative his theories have been. And I think that's what's so fantastic. That's like embodying of the kind of psychoanalytic spirit and practice that you can read and come up with your own ideas, interpretations. And I, like I said before, I just really appreciate people who come up with their own ideas in their work and don't just feel like they have to memorize or regurgitate what like masters say, you know? Exactly. 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 Well, but exactly. But that's the, the thing, right? To be able to do this, 
course, Freud, Lacan spoke, spoke about the return to Freud, that you have to kill the primal father <laughs> also, <laughs> in some way, symbolically at least, to, to find a new way to approach death in psychoanalysis. Yeah, you have to cut, you know, in some way with it and find your own way. That's nice, I think. I, I since Freud, you know, excommunicated everyone who was too critical towards him. I don't know if he would uh, uh, approve of this, but at the same time, I think that it's the only way of being faithful to his, yeah, to his revolutionary novelty of, of the unconscious. You have to do it. You have to kill him. No, that's a very good point. That's another thing when I was reading, you know, that's basically when, when you, you know, everyone says like, why did him and Jung break? And it's because of the Jung's like spiritual cult beliefs and this kind of thing. They, yeah. and his not centralizing sexuality but that's what the the whole Zurich kind of institute broke away and uh, from psych from Freud's psychoanalysis at that time as well because they said exactly that like that he had just become too dogmatic with his ideas and wanting people to adhere to the yeah. way he thought of it instead of like they felt like before he was more encouraging of people like you know taking the ideas on uh, that he'd gotten like too dogmatic. So that yeah. happened early on. This is in 1914. But I think that's Lacan's great intervention. I, mean, I love his theory and I love his work. But yeah. at, at the end of the day, I think that's really like the Lacanian intervention was being like, you know, who's making these decisions, taking the power out of the hands of the institutes and like putting it back, not just in the analysts, but in, in individuals and in people. Yeah. You know, you can't just look at the, the person supposed to know, you can't just look for a master. You no. have to kind of find your own position. Exactly. It would be nice to like conceive of psychoanalysis, uh, to try to like imagine a form of psychoanalysis without the Pope, <laughs> and which wouldn't like uh, uh, like descend into some kind of state of uh, Trotskyism. <laughs> that would be nice, but uh, it seems that it's quite a challenge for us, you know, to just to the people. Yeah. And so that's what I've learned. Any people in, in any groups always like, you know, start making hierarchies and yep. it's just like what humans do something about our kind of, we're like pack minded in that way or something where yep. once we're like in a group, we just start like positioning ourselves in relation to one another in certain ways that has been happening for probably all of time, yep. <laughs> all of human time. Exactly. <laughs> There's something there also having to be do, do with like being faithful to Lacan. Lacan obviously theoretically was revolutionary, etc. But at least they say you now that he got excommunicated from you know the, the International Psychological Association because of his radical you know intervention, radical like changes in the clinical practice. You now and psychoanalysis for me it's obvious you know theory sure but it's a practice it's a clinical practice that's what it is you know and um, of course there is some dogmaticism how we should do this work and that you can be uh, there is like this hierarch hierarchical like domatic like structural ways that you should like pass through this and you should work like this and if you don't do it you're not a psychoanalyst and stuff but like the spirit of of, of Lacan I believe more than Freud is to do do it your way mm -hmm. and um, Perhaps, uh, perhaps it will go to hell. Perhaps you will be like just rubbish, but do it, you know, follow your desire. I don't know, even if it kills you, you know, making reference to, to the death drive, of course. 
yeah, I believe that uh, there is something to do with with the singularity of the psychoanalyst uh, and the way that you place yourself in the clinical setting. You know that uh, at least after Lacan, that uh, that one should take into account and which goes like collides with the way it it's, tends to be structured in many of the schools today. I find it very sad. Yep. I think you should speak to each other like psychoanalysts uh, proceeding from the clinical practice. Absolutely. And, uh, and listen to each other closely and don't try to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah. I also want to make sure we mention the Bergman book. So I'm editing a book on psychoanalytic perspectives of Ingmar Bergman, and you wrote a piece. So would you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yes, it was a while ago. <laughs> but sure, I, I wrote this text, uh, which is called Beyond Silence uh, on the Absence of God in the Films of Ingmar Bergman. Well, it is a psychoanalytic perspective of the absence of God in the films of Ingmar Bergman, basically. So I make some kind of, I watch um, closely the seventh seal. Um, through a mirror darkly and uh, and uh, winter light where Freud, uh, Freud Bergman dwells uh, or is preoccupied, uh, try to depict uh, the problem having to do with the human being's relation to, to, to God and his absence. And um, many of the films, two of them at least, uh, principally, of course, the seven seal, revolves around the question of death and God. And, uh, and yeah, but, but we could put death aside <laughs> and, and try to, Bergman has like two different ways of depicting man's relation to the eventual absence of God. One is God the Father, God who abandoned Christ on the cross, God uh, who, uh, who is this kind of point of reference for the prayers of man, the lamentations of man, the appeals of man, uh, show yourself God, God, talk to me, answer my prayers, you know, the name of the Father, basically, uh, which is placed on some kind of symbolical position um, in the void of the symbolic up there, the God that doesn't exist, as Lacan would say. Uh, on the other hand, and this is like, we could argue at least the God of the Old Testament, broadly speaking. And the other part, which is Lacan's, uh, Bergman's later way of approaching the question about God is, is um, precisely the one that is closer to, to let's say, the interpretation of Christ, uh, which uh, we find in, in, uh, in the, the Testament of St. John, namely that, that God is love, love is God. And that there is something to do with, with the absence of God uh, on this level, which is equated with lovelessness, a lack of love, absence of love, that is the absence of Christ, you know. Uh, and this is the predicament of the human being, being thrown out into a world, according to him, my interpretation at least, being thrown into a world where there is no love, basically. There is a lack of love, there is loss, there is death. And this is the precondition, you know, for the emergence of love within. Uh, in some sense, the death of Christ, uh, understood as a death of God, 
understood as the absence of love, you know, uh, forces man to confront this void and uh, to give, you know, to love. The, the lack of love in the world uh, is a responsibility of the human being who lacks love, you know, to be able to love. And uh, yeah, he approaches that position more and more. You know, he actually wrote about it in his, uh, in his uh, textbooks, how do you call it, his uh, journal, uh, that the more he thought about it, the more like topics like eternity, uh, paradise, etc., got like reasonable to him when he understood that God is, is love, you know. One could think about, uh, uh, well, the, the, I think it's um, St. John also, you know, where is God, where you are not, the realm of God is within you. He gets there, Bergman, he gets there. With that being said, um, I think that there is something that is missing in his kinds of uh, um, stagings of, of the question about the absence of God. Not only the lack of, you know, the answer of the God the Father, not only the lack of love, but also the lack of this dimension of the spiritual or the religious, which we could ascribe to, let's say, polytheism or animism or mysticism, which would be then this uh, feeling of overwhelming awe, you know, which you could imagine that people uh, can, can be overwhelmed by when we encounter um, the unimaginable, uh, the natural uh, uh, phenomenon, you know, lightning, volcanoes, whirlwinds, and which at least uh, historically was understood as a confrontation, not with God, but with a God. <laughs> it's a significant difference. There is something having to do with the absence of God in his movies, which I argue at least is not really, really there. And that is... Uh, the kind of encounter with the divine that uh, corresponds to the phenomenology of uh, of uh, polytheism. Yeah, and he himself says it somewhere that he tried, you know, <laughs> he tried, you know, to try to depict this kind of almost dreamlike uh, beauty uh, where the divine is present in, in this way, and he failed miserably, and he. Uh, he wrote that Tarkovsky was the greatest of them all, the greatest of them all. He, he managed to do this perfectly. Although, naturally, Tarkovsky was uh, monotheist, was Christian, I would at least argue that he may, that his films are like permeated by this sense of uh, the divine and of awe, which we human beings, a couple of millennia ago, not too many of actually, uh, encountered, you know, live, uh, live close by in our relationship to nature, basically, yeah. And, uh, you know, with civilization and with this kind of monotheistic centralization of, uh, of the prosaic uh, reading of, of, uh, of the law, for, its, uh, for example, this dimension tends to be lost and those who manage to profoundly experience it, it's uh, many times at least, I think, a personal experience and those who really, really speak about this are the mystics, you know, the mystics. And I believe that this mystic dimension, at least, was more present in the polytheistic and animistic time. And that aspect of uh, the absence of God, you know, isn't there. That is the absence of the mystic, the absence of the dimension of awe. 
that it's lacking in Bergman's film. It is, let's say, I am Swedish. It's Swedish. <laughs> it's austere, you know. It's melancholic. It's emptiness. It's black, you know. That that's lacking. There's something lacking there. And uh, and there, I think that you could turn towards Tarkovsky and find another way to approach the question about the absence of presence of God. Yeah, something like that. That's fantastic, and I totally agree. I feel like, um, to me, in my mind, like monotheism and then the kind of evangelical turn towards like everyone else has to believe this also <laughs> and like putting it upon people through the crusades and everything um, it's like directly led into like colonialism and capitalism and us thinking that we're like apart from and better than the earth and the other creatures and yeah. that kind of distance has led us to like be able to just destroy things to this degree and like think that we're kind of above it yeah, I agree. Totally. It's sad. Think about it. We can't even like watch the night sky anymore. It's sad. Think about like actually living beneath it. You know. Yeah, you imagine what that was like. I think I've I've it's I think about this all the time. I think I've probably seen like a full night sky of stars like less than ten times in my entire life. <laughs> And then you think about how people just like lived under that all of the time. And anytime I've seen it, it's so awe-inspiring. Just, you know, just that it's like, how could you not be in awe? Of course, I'm sure things were terrifying as well. And maybe they go together. But like, um, you know, how could you not be at awe at the wonder of the earth when you're actually like living, living in it, <laughs> not feeling so apart from it? And then we can like dethrone the human being and civilization. One could, you know. Perhaps it's not true, but you could say it at least, and it's beautiful. You know, you can you can conceive at least that like men didn't invent writing, for example, but that discovered writing by watching the stars, you know, and interpreting them like like gods or like signs of God. That's what Schreber talks about, of course, the the relationship between the stars and and, and God's language. You could like understand this dimension. Uh, trying to, if we like erase the civilization as we know it and just put ourselves there, I think you can try to understand that we human beings are perhaps not responsible for the existence of civilization <laughs> or, or the thing that we at least conceive of as fundamental to it. For example, language, for example, uh, religion, for example, uh, writing. Perhaps we didn't invent it. Perhaps we found it. You know? Perhaps we found it in language. You know, Vico has this amazing myth about the origin of language also, about lighting striking down, you know, suddenly, and, and the original man who didn't speak, uh, like got totally awestruck and understood that uh, the lightning was, was a god trying to speak to him, you know, with lightning. And language was discovered, not invented, you know, discovered. Uh, and he, this is quite fun also, he said that the first language onomatopoetic, you know, they tried to imitate it. So the first word was ba. It was trying to like, uh, how do you call it, imitate it. And mm -hmm. then like he repeated it, papa. So the first word was papa, daddy. <laughs> but he has this beautiful, beautiful um, line where he said that uh, the human beings in the origin of, uh, of the history of the human, uh, of humankind 
experience nature as the language of the gods you know it's the same thing there you know the the fundamental elements of our world our civilization we didn't create it it came to us we found it you know and we constructed something on the basis of that which totally at the end like excluded it you know and we make ourselves the, the the masters of the world and master of everything you know it's sad it's very sad this dimension of the divine everyone's searching for it nowadays spirituality and stuff i don't know do they found it i don't know i believe it comes to you perhaps you can't like find it like picasso you know i don't search i find it comes to you i think and it's difficult today to to encounter it where do you found it where did this come to you know where i don't know yeah that's like yeah the sensation of the sublime and of it forces you to to confront the um, impotence of of language and there it um, give you this like impetus to proceed uh, to approach poetry exactly in the same way as, as we do with the encounter of death because i believe actually that it's they're operating these two kinds of phenomenon you know on the one hand this night night sky and, and the natural phenomena you know and death it's the same level it's basically the same level it's basically the same you know feelings it's the same disposition you know i believe it i believe it is actually and uh, yeah that's why i believe you should read poetry and mysticism more than freud if you want to be able to say something meaningful to patients who suffer that's what i think thank you for listening to rendering unconscious you've just heard a discussion with pablo lerner for more you can visit his website pablolerner.se you can visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website renderingunconscious.org for links and more information you can also follow me on twitter and instagram at rawsin underscore that's r-a-w-s-i-n underscore and now the song the primary power of sound from a collaboration i did with swedish artist per olund available at highbrow lowlife's bandcamp page that's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Also available as a limited edition CD that includes my original artwork at tripart.net. Life. Perhaps the primary power of sound. And this is especially true with regard to metaphonics. It is in its relationship to time. More specifically, this relationship is expressed by sounds. The ability to achieve various degrees of time dilation relative, subjective, 
experiences of duration, relative, subjective experiences of duration. We will realize that in each fragment, we will realize no that how much fragment, large, no matter how small, we will realize that in each fragment, we will realize how small each fragment, large, no matter how small, we irregular. It is in its relationship to time. As most of us are aware by now, if we shatter and scatter any hologram, we will realize that in each fragment, no matter how small, large, or irregular, we will see the whole hologram.